This, this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, people? Welcome back to Rebound and Safety. And it's the next episode of our diversity mini series. Let's jump into the intro. I'll tell you some more about it. Let's go. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risplum. What's up peeps, welcome back to Rebranding Safety. Today is another episode of our diversity mini-series. Quick message from our sponsors, and then we're going to do the caveat, the disclaimer that comes with this mini-series, because it's a very sensitive space. And, uh, and then we'll get into the amazing guests that we have on today. So, you know who our sponsor is now if you're a regular listener to the podcast, but ultimately it's good to keep talking about them because they're an amazing brand. They're an amazing company. I'm absolutely, you know, I, I just love them. I just absolutely love them, particularly Trees are the founder the, the, the flag bearer, so to speak, of Paradigm. She's an absolute legend. I love the lady. And she's built an amazing company at Paradigm. So what are Paradigm? Paradigm are human organizational performance experts. They've also got a HSE subscription service, which is specifically what sponsors Rebound and Safety YouTube channel and podcast. The HSE subscription service is, is that solution to enable the company that they partner with, particularly small, medium-sized enterprise, to build that foundation of compliance. It's going to help you put worker safety at the core DNA of your organization. But ultimately, this isn't a compliance off-the-shelf system. This isn't the kind of thing you're going to need to declutter a few years down the line, or you're going to have going to be all oh, old view and now we've got to go over to new view you know this has got human organizational performance woven throughout of it so this system is compliance with the future of capacity building and human error and all of that stuff kind of built into it it's, it's thought about that so it's building that foundation but it's building those foundations ready for the next step as well so if you're a small medium-sized enterprise and you're thinking i really need to get better at my regulatory and industry compliance then this is the solution for you if you really want to utilize the expertise the subject matter expertise of the workforce then this is the service for you you want paradigm to be your right hand you can contact them in the phone number and email address below and if you do go to their website don't forget to check out the learning organization webinars an outstanding resource so without further ado let's jump into the caveat the disclaimer for the diversity mini series i put this in here because i i'm a bit nervous about this mini series it is it is something i'm really passionate about but ultimately it's a space that we're all learning uh, and it's a space that you know, we're, we're all completely changing from what we were back in the day. You know, when I was born and raised, I was so kind of oh, just I wasn't what I want to be now, what I would like me to be now. You know, I was so sheltered in a way, you know, and no offense to anyone that's raised me. I appreciate the, the person that they've created. But ultimately, I was very sheltered. I've lived a quite a sheltered life in my wee little county. And ultimately, that means that this is such a learning journey for me. And it's the same for many other people around the country and around the world. We're all learning how to change the way that we talk, 
to be more inclusive, to be more diverse. And that learning process is never easy. And that means sometimes we slip up. And that means sometimes we say things and we think, oh, I wouldn't have said that, you know, a year later or so on and so forth. And ultimately, it means that you, the listener, may be more mature in this journey than the guest is on today's show, or I am, for example. So I think it's really important that when you're listening to this, you remember that it's coming from a good place. Both myself, my guests, and all of the guests that we have on this mini-series are all just talking about their own experiences. They're all passionate about sharing their journey to help others. So if you need to feedback, we want you to feedback. But if you do want to feedback, then please do it from an empathetic and understanding position. So please share, please comment, please message, whatever you need to do to get this message out there, which is a really, really important message. But ultimately, let's do it in a nice way so that we can all help each other. Ultimately, thank you very much for listening to that um disclaimer it just makes me feel a little bit more comfortable because uh, ultimately i'm not perfect to this and, I, and i'm really passionate about it and i don't want that to devalue um what we're trying to do here and uh, the, the aim of this mini series is to raise awareness for the lack of diversity within our profession and, and to encourage more diverse cultures um sexual preferences genders etc into the profession because it brings better ideas it brings new ways of thinking and we need that so without further ado, let's get into today's episode of the Diversity Miniseries with the amazing Anne Gardner-Ashton. Anne does some amazing work for women in safety. She's also a great safety professional with some amazing stories. So it's a mixed bag in today's conversation. We talk a lot about her career and just general interest in uh, challenges that she's had. One in particular was put me in a really difficult place because I really wanted to talk about that, but ultimately it had nothing to do with diversity. So we kind of had to bring it back and then talk about diversity. So I think there's a there's a roll call out there to bring Anne back on the podcast so we can talk some more about her previous roles. But ultimately, let's get into today's episode. Anne, welcome Hi. to the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you very much for coming on. We're going to have a chit chat today. It's uh, about about your career, actually. So this will be really easy for you. Really Simple. You're going to talk about you. Couldn't have asked for an easier conversation, really. Fabulous. I know all about it. <laughs> You're an expert. <laughs> Chosen specialist. <laughs> um, because we're going to slot this in as part of this kind of wider um, diversity mini series. So it's and, and you're obviously doing quite a bit of work in that space, or, or you've you've had it lumped on you from when we last spoke, which I'm sure we'll, we'll kind of come <laughs> on to. Lumped is not, not quite the word, I suppose. But yes, it, I've been steered in this direction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> personality is stronger than I. <laughs> uh, awesome. Do you want to kick off by just giving us a, a brief introduction to yourself, and then, and then we'll just have a chit-chat from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I am... Um, a long-term health and safety professional. I've been doing it for a million years um, and graduated as an environmental health officer back in the mid-90s. So it's been quite a a varied career. I think for all the jobs in health and safety, I've probably done just about all of them by now. Um, Starting off with council work, doing environmental health enforcement stuff, then moving into a very brief spell as a consultant, um, followed on by a long stint with the Metropolitan Police um, and then moving up as to be a, a director of health and safety. And then subsequent to that, I left that last year um, and gone back to consultancy 
with a view for it not necessarily lasting long, but is probably turning into something that's that's going to be a, a self-employment wonderland. Mm. So that's that's where we are in a potted history, I suppose. So the gamut, I think, of health and safety jobs. Mm. So I could probably answer anybody's career queries, I hope, by this stage. Do you, yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you say you've had quite a diverse background of safety. Like, do you, do you think that's helped? Because I've got quite a diverse background, like works in so many industries. But then in, in the safety profession, it's very common to someone to be like, I've worked in construction for my entire yes. career, that, which is really common. And, and I've actually struggled when applying for jobs where they go, well, yeah, you did work in manufacturing, but you don't anymore. So we don't, you know, we kind of don't really like that we want you to stay in manufacturing forever but I actually think it's a benefit to have a bit of a diverse background what's your I think so as well no I think so and it's it's not necessarily um I mean if you've got a one um a one subject career so let's say construction but within that there are quite a few jobs that you can do and I suppose if you Mm. turned the spotlight around on my career you could say well by and large you've worked in in sort of people related health and safety so it's not yeah. been hugely yeah. technical um it's not it's not been particularly specialist mm. been fairly generic right the way through but you know it's all based around people mm-hmm. whereas in construction i suppose you can work on building sites you can work in the you know as a principal designer or you know there's a there's a diverse range of careers you can have within that that microcosm um but i suppose you know, you can still move through a, a career ladder in the same way that I've done, um, you know, and you can work in enforcement in construction in the same way that you can work as a group director in construction. Mm. It's just the, the different industries, I suppose, that that bring the diversity to it. And, the mm. you know, you can look at things with a slightly different perspective and, mm. you know, different people, different customer bases, etc. So it just brings a different viewpoint, I think. Yeah. I feel like it's not like one or the other. It's a bit of both. Like you want someone who's, if you want to work in construction, you want someone in your team who's like a construction geek, don't you? Someone who's lived and breathed construction. You want that person, but you also want a person that like, like yourself have worked in somewhere really different, like the police force, for example, and bring some weird ideas that we'd have never thought of in construction. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And like, so I did stuff when I've worked in healthcare and housing, and now working in a trade association with construction and manufacturing and some of the stuff I'm bringing over is like, well, this is kind of what they did in housing, which I think might work here actually. And then, oh, we'd have never thought of that. Well, that's because you've never employed anyone from housing. And why would you? It's yeah. just coincidental that, that that's happened. Um, yeah. That kind of cognitive diversity thing, that diversity of thought. Yeah. And I think it takes quite, um, quite an open-minded employer to be looking at different industries to draw your talent from. But of course the higher up the, the chain you go the less you need to be technically minded anyway so you know as, a, as somebody that that can look strategically at health and safety you, you could in theory go into any industry in the world because the principles are exactly the same stuff that you'll be doing is exactly the same but I would struggle to step into a role with um I don't know mace for example one of the large house builders because they you know seem to want you to have risen up through the ranks of that so you've got an intrinsic understanding of it but isn't when you would once you got into that job it would be a lot around strategic health and safety how do you communicate with people how do you engage people how do you report to the board it's you know the skills are very very similar I, I, I hate to ask this kind of really cliche question 
But yeah. I feel like seeing as it's the diversity mini series, we kind of have to. And actually, I think I've spoke I've not long ago spoke to Louise Hoskins, who I know you know quite well. I think she's yeah. got a very similar career background. I think she started around the similar time in in how she, in, she uh, did exactly the same degree. In fact, we worked whilst I was doing that that mini slot as a consultant. We worked for the same company, and that's that's how I no know. Way. And then we sort of split off into different directions. And now she's a consultant, and suddenly I'm a consultant as well. So yes, I think we oh, full are circle. separated at birth. <laughs> <laughs> and she's the she's the strong person, one of the strong personalities that I was talking about earlier. That seems to have sort of guided me into a, a role that I doubt. I don't suppose we'll we'll um, not discuss later. Yeah. So the question is actually very similar to what I asked Louise. It's, it's, what is it like? What was it like in in local enforcement as as a woman around those times? Like I know it sounds like a really horrible cliche question, but it, it, I think those, the stories is good to hear. Oh yeah, well, and not only a woman, but a very a, a very young and mm. naive, probably fairly impressionable, straight <laughs> in out of university you know inappropriate hairstyles and clothing <laughs> choices and attitudes and all sorts so I mean I, I was I was quite a young adult if you know what yeah. I mean so it, it felt really exciting suddenly moving 200 and some miles away from home you know that was my wow. big that you know I flew the nest as soon as I graduated I went from uh, the northwest of England down to Berkshire and that was that was my oh. big thing but I yeah. never you know, my growing up really didn't get further than that for a while. <laughs> that was, that was <laughs> adulting for me. That was enough being an adult. Thanks. So going into something like enforcement, where actually, you know, you have to you have to have both reserves of resilience and also come across in an authentic, you know, but, but strong and and authoritative um, manner, probably wasn't for me. And mm. and I stuck at it for about four, maybe four years felt like four years um and then just thought you know what this is not me at all and, and actually looking back on it now I can still I still have the traits that made me not a good enforcement officer in those days yeah. I don't you know I don't I don't feel comfortable just walking in and telling people what they should and shouldn't do yeah. I'm much more of a you know a sort of a, a collaborative well very feminine traits which again we'll probably discuss later but all the feminine traits exist within me <laughs> to do health and safety um and, and none of the authoritarian traits that's interesting i like that that that, that it's going to take me down a little rabbit hole actually because that's really interesting i've not long spoke to rosa carillo i don't know if you know yeah and i picked she, up on the podcast clip that you did yeah oh uh, yeah so she is like a bit of a soft skill which you don't like calling them soft skills she likes to call them relational skills which okay yeah <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I mean, there's more names for soft skills than there is for anything else, I think. But anyway, and and she raised a really interesting point around them being typically feminine traits, those softer skills, empathy, you know, building relationships, listening or good listening, active listening, whatever you want to call it. And all of those skills are typically feminine traits. And then I was in another podcast with um, the kind of quarterly co-host thing we're doing with the, who was the, Oh, bloody hell. What was it? The CEO of the British uh, Frozen Food Federation. That just rolls off the tongue. And I said the same to him, like typically they're kind of feminine traits. And and we ended up going down this conversation that he was kind of like, not sure. Like, I think that men can, can get these. And I said, no, definitely. I think they can. But 
they probably come a lot easier to women, I think, maybe. I mean, I'm not a biologist, neurologist or whatever, so I don't really know, but they are inherently traditional female traits, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. And there's enough there's enough research backing it up, I think, that that people in the HR world have done mm. to say that, you know, it doesn't nothing's binary, is it? And, no. it, you know, people cross over with their traits. So, but I think when we're talking about how how things are progressing, certainly in the health and safety world, it does feel a little bit like the the rule based safety is taking a back seat, and people, you know, now have to look at how messages are being received as well as how they're delivered and that's that's where the fundamental changes are coming in I think whether you call it safety differently or safety two or people centers whatever you call it mm. <laughs> and I'm sure people call things a, a lot yeah. sometimes seem to be a bit of a bun fight about it um but that's essentially what it's broken down to isn't it you've got a message to deliver it's often unwelcome it's often received with boredom and yawning and or negatively so if you're going to make a success of this, you've got to look at it from the other side. And that's where the empathy and the um, and the listening and the collaborating and the understanding and the cocking the head to one side and, you know, looking really sympathetically at somebody coming in. <laughs> so how, how is that kind of, so you're, you're I, I do think there's a, there's a side of nurture to it as well. Cause like I, I was raised by women, like Mowgli was raised by, by animals. I was raised by my mother and grandma and I, and I think I'm inherited, you know, the, the, the more softer side safety too, whatever you call it, is it, it sings to me like it really clicks with me. The rules stuff, ne- it just never sat well with me. Like, you know what you said when you were in enforcement, that you're like, no, this doesn't work. I was exactly the same. Like, it just didn't, there was just something that didn't work with me inside. So do you think, you know, it's a good, it's just worth saying that just because you're a man doesn't mean you can't have those traits, but um how how did that kind of I was interested in those two worlds you said when you were in uh, back coming back into your story and enforcement young kind of sound like maybe a bit of a rebel with the the hair and the like right <laughs> and and then and then the softer empathetic but were they kind of and then being asked to be uh, a kind of rule-based role those kind of worlds kind of colliding a little bit at that point and four years and you moved on was there a specific point there that made you feel like that or was it just natural over time you were like this is just not working for me yeah I think so I I was giving too many people the benefit of the doubt and trying yeah. to I mean yeah I suppose it's been a long time since I was an environmental health officer and things may well have changed now to be a lot more collaborative but you had a even back in the day you had a list of premises that you had to go and inspect every year you, you go in you try and catch them doing something that they shouldn't be doing so that you can tell them off and write them a really big report and serve notice on them or something like that but there was no opportunity to sort of really sit down and 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 chat with them about how you can do things better unless they were going to pay for a training course so it was it, it the, the opportunities to to do that um discussion you know meeting in the middle you know getting to getting to understand why they did what they did just wasn't there yeah. um and i suspect probably now it's a little bit more collaborative with business because yeah. it's opened up a little bit um but, but back in those days it was just you know i just felt my soul being sucked out of me every time i went in there and you know it, it depends with some some 
places were absolutely lovely and I actually made quite good friends with some of the which which equally made it really difficult so again yeah. you know sort of bleed into the wrong kind of relationship with somebody um which they may or may not have taken advantage of that I couldn't possibly say and I certainly won't be saying which restaurants they were but, <laughs> but they are currently my favorite restaurants <laughs> <laughs> always eat from there so it's um yeah and I think you know at that stage I was like, well this is my job this is this is a job that I have to do and I've got to try and do it to the best of my ability and then sort of 18 months out from from leaving I was thinking oh, I, just, I can't do this again I can't go through this round of you know going to see the same people telling them the same thing all the time them not doing it and you know all of the all of the heartache that comes with that so yeah and then that sort of moved into well consultancy is good because then you just tell them what to do and then you can go <laughs> you don't have to worry about whether they're doing it or not. In the, and the, again, that was a bit, well, that ended up being too formulaic in right. a way. So although yeah. you weren't, you know, although you weren't going into businesses to tell them what to do all the time, at least with a business, you had some variety in there and you had a bit of, you know, a bit different personalities and, and so on. But but. In my first stint as a consultant, it was very routine and very formulaic. And, and it just so happened that the job at the Met was advertised. And it's the sort of job that you can't look away from. Well, it was for me anyway. And so, yes, it didn't last very long. Interesting. I want to talk about the Met and I will in a minute. But it's interesting that actually the way you've kind of come across this 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 your your challenge sort of we've we've spoke to a few people and a, and a few women in this in this mini series so far and and a couple of them you know like uh, just crystal comes to mind where she you know she had a real challenge actually just with the relationships with men and how they treated her mm. but yours is really interesting because it's more about your inherent traits as a woman mm. that were com- that were conflicting with the job not the interactions you were having with people which is fascinating why did you why do you think you didn't just go do you know what safety is not for me what made you stay with safety which I'm curious because I think if there's that much of a clash and then you went in consultancy and were like oh god it's the same and maybe it was the timing of the Met job coming up but I think a lot of people at that point might have gone this career choice is not right for me (laughs) possibly yeah possibly it was but I've never had a problem getting on with other people male or female and possibly I don't know, maybe unusually, I've never felt a sting of discrimination when I've been either applied. It may have been there and I'm just really naive and blind to it, but I've never felt as if, you know, somebody hasn't treated me in accordance, you know, with respect or whatever, because I'm female, maybe because I'm young, maybe mm. because I've got a stupid hairdo and, and wearing, you know, ridiculous boots or whatever, but not because <laughs> I'm female <laughs> inherently. So it's, it's yeah. very much about, you know, it's, it's perhaps quite self-aware, I suppose, to, to realise that, you know, when you're, when you're looking at your career to, to pick out the bits that are, are good about it and, and, identify the bits that are bad and decide that you don't want to do those bits it's not about interpersonal issues at all it's just about whether I as a person am suited to that particular role but I had knowledge and I and I had the interest that I wouldn't have called it a passion and I still wouldn't actually um, but I certainly had the interest and the knowledge and the spark to be able to see health and safety as a problem solving exercise um 
Right. And that's that's where it's not the technical bit that interests me either. It's the problem solving. It's the getting to grips with people's issues, working with them to find a way around it and then, you know, getting to a mutually satisfactory conclusion. And that's all that's that's what it's always been about. And that's why that first stint of consultancy not actually really very appealing because, you know, you, you know, you, you were just providing them with a, a formula risk assessment or a formula report. Yeah. that you then sent them away with and you didn't work with them to try and fix it. Yeah. Um, which, you know, the, the, the second half of my career, I suppose, to date has been all about that. Yeah. Do you think that maybe that was of its time? Like maybe of that time, that's the kind of safety that people wanted then, but now it's a bit more problem solving with a, yeah. a little bit of the formula stuff kind of tagging on. But that's interesting. So it was that problem solving spark that you just kind of were able to focus on and say, no, I still believe that's there, even though the traits and are clashing at the moment, but I still love that, which kind of kept you in the, in the career. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. interesting. You said something there, which is interesting about the, 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 the youth side of it. And uh, which, which I think is fascinating. You mentioned the youth, your hair and your boots. So that's interesting. And, and, and I think it's interesting for me because um, I was started in safety with no, no university, no nothing, just literally fell into it like most people do, uh, but, uh, but at a quite a young age. So um, I was 20. Yeah. Was I 20? I was at 20, 21 ish. And, um, and, and I actually found the biggest challenge for me was just the assumption that I don't know what I'm talking about because of the youth. Um, you know, there's an assumption that young people are stupid and they don't really know, you know, they need to get some years on them and, and stuff like that. Or, or, or as well, I was just talking to a person before you came on um, about if you're, if you're maybe trying to, especially now as you, some of the new view stuff might be seen as a bit progressive, if you're young and trying to push this more, progressive I say in quotations view of safety they just kind of maybe make an assumption that you're just young far left and woke and and that's it do you know what I mean and, and I, I felt I, maybe that's what you're saying maybe it wasn't but I could definitely relate to that one line that you said there about maybe the youth side of it I felt that for sure I think that's something that we maybe still struggle with as well I think Louise said the same yeah yeah and I think it's it's possibly the job that you go into you know, as your as your first health and safety role that potentially defines whether you're too young for it or not. So for Louise and I going into an environmental health role where you you know you're expected to, you basically stand up in front of a, a magistrate or a judge yeah, yeah. and be an expert witness. Wow! At the age of twenty two. Jeez, yeah, that's massive. Yeah, and I just done four years of university. Quite frankly, I knew jack shit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, and and in, within my first week, it could have been me stood yeah. up giving yeah. evidence against somebody. And so I think, you know, in that role, you know, seasoned business owners probably had the right to look at me and think, "What the hell do you know?" Yeah. Wet behind the ears, stupid boots. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, with the, I said to my niece, um, who's only a little bit younger than me, has has gone into the same career choice and I said to her really early on that actually most jobs especially when you're younger is just an acting job it's not an anything job it's just an acting job so you've got to be able to 
put on not necessarily a game face, but certainly your, your work face um, and not let your true personality when you're very young come through. And I think, okay. you know, however, however non, um, well, it's not PC, is it? But, but however much you'd like to think, well, people want to be authentic and they you know, want to bring the, their whole selves to work and all of that kind of thing. Well, actually, I think there are certain circumstances where you can't do that and maybe you shouldn't do that. You should, you should adopt the persona of the, of the health and safety professional that you want to project. Now I wouldn't do it. Now I'd tell the bugger off. You get what you're given. Because now you're kind of in a position where you can do that, aren't you? But when when you're young, you can't. No. No, I think so, because I've earned my stripes in a way. Yeah. Um, so I think That's you've got to pretend fine. you've got stripes early <laughs> doors. And then you can, you actually earn them and then you can display them. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and I feel, when you first said it, I was like, hmm, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because of that point, you know, it's a bit woke to be authentic and stuff like that, which is, like I say, it always kind of sings to me. But yeah, now you say it and I think back to me in my first job, second job, maybe even third job in safety was like, yeah, the, 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 the version of James that they got was different to the normal version of James because I hadn't earned my stripes to be what. I needed and 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 as well, I needed the money. Do you know what I mean? I, I needed the job. I needed the money. And and we talk about I talk about this a lot of time with like people that have listened to this podcast or part of Project Millennium or whatever, and they, they're kind of a bit frustrated or they're trying to do something. And and sometimes I think maybe you get to a point where you have to make the decision. It's either authentic you, but somewhere else. Hmm. or the to your to use your words the actor version of you where you are now you, you yeah. just have to make that decision but sometimes yeah. you're just not right are you for that company and they're not right for you no and I think you've got to be quite brave to be able to recognize that and I think people in in health and safety can spend whole careers not finding that authentic self mm. and probably you know spend a lifetime in a job that doesn't really suit them but they're there for either the money or for comfort or you know, because they don't they don't recognize it in themselves to break away and do something else. Yeah. So, you know, from from my perspective, after those two early jobs, it was clear that, you know, I've, I've had enough of acting it out um, yeah. and wanted to start doing something that was much more me. Yeah. Which brings us nicely on to the Met. So talk to me about the Met. What was your role within the police force then? Um, I started as a senior safety advisor. Um, and then by the time I left 12 years later as, um, wow. as the head of operational safety and health, um, which, as you might imagine, is no small job, really. Um, but it's very interesting. You know, talk about microclimates of the weather. Well, the Met Police and probably any police service is a, is a sort of microcosm all of its own and yeah. a, a way of doing things all of its own. Um, for, but for a health and safety professional, it's fascinating because, of course, um, it, like normal health and safety jobs you're protecting people from risk the whole time you're pulling them away from it you're shielding them from it with They're the police and other emergency services straight in there yeah. so you've got to manage it much more pragmatically which is where this whole problem solving thing comes in we've got a problem we've got to chase um, a baddie down a railway track how are we going to do that well let's let's work out you know what needs to happen to allow that to take place so you know for every 
there was a lot of mundane stuff don't get me wrong but but for all of the exciting stuff there was a real brain challenge and a real stimulation to you know this has to be done it's called the policing imperative it has to happen although does it pass the daily mail test or not well if it doesn't then it has to be done um and so you've got to fight, find a way around and work very, very collaboratively with some of the senior officers who are fixed on the goal yeah. and not so much interested in, no, not interested, I suppose that's the wrong word, but but are leaving the detail of how it gets done to yeah. somebody else. Um, so, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And from a professional point of view, opened up so many different worlds of doing health and safety uh, talking about health and safety um you know experiencing some of the worst stuff in the world and you know coming out of it the other side thinking oh my goodness what on earth have i learned there and taking yeah. years to process it in some respects um so yeah it's a, it's a it's a tough environment to work in because it has a certain um it has a certain way of doing things you've got to be quite tenacious you've got to understand who to speak to which is not necessarily the most senior person you think you're influencing um at that level you've got to go in at staff officer level which could be constable sergeant yeah. you know somebody that you wouldn't talk to about strategic stuff but there there is the the path through to you leading up yeah chief superintendent your commander whatever so all finding all of that out it's a very steep learning curve. And then, of course, every five years, you have a change at the top. And so everything that you've worked for for the last five years, you've been putting in place, you've been shifting, well, really nudging and inching things forward a little bit. And then somebody new comes in, like, I don't want it done like that. Go on. I want it done like, you know. So 12 years was was about as much. I think that was that was I two or three cycles of commissioner. And I thought, I know, I can't do it all again. I just yeah. can't. Can't go back to, to square one all over again. That was on the strategic side. You must have some resolve and resilience because I worked in the NHS for only a couple of years and we and we obviously went through the same thing. Every five years, new government, new mm. new Department of Health and a new vision. And even if it was Tory stayed in again, it was still a different prime minister or a different. There was something different, whether it was an approach and the NHS was always at the top, the same as what the police force is. It was a, a very powerful thing for them to talk about. And it was just like, oh, OK, that, that's what we're doing this year. Is it? So everything I've just done is down the shitter and we're yes. not talking about that anymore. It's um, yeah. So you, you must have some resilience to because I just put I was like three years two two and a bit years in business redesign. I'm like, you know what? Nah, nah, this is not for me. I'm off. I'm off. I think it's, you know, in some ways it's the people that you're dealing with, though, because you do you do work with the people in the police who are interested in health and safety. So so the health and safety department was a central team and you work with one or two individuals in each <coughs> business unit, whatever it is, um, who have an interest in health and safety. And they're your primary point of course, and they can actually become you know, a really solid working relationship and somebody yeah. that you turn to to try and get things done. So it's as much about the people and the personalities that you're working with as much as it is about the structures and the, um, you know, and the, the grind of it all. Because actually, you know, when you, what we, what we were trying to do is move things forward strategically, but it's a huge, great big tanker to turn around. Um, and the culture just doesn't feel like it, it was necessarily ready yeah to 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 push on strategically but you've got to do what you can because you know the world is expecting 
health and safety to be done differently. So you've got to try and keep just trying to poke it forward a little bit. But the underlying operational policing, health and safety stuff remained the same the whole time. And your job is to try and keep officers safe and get them home at the end of the day, yeah. um, despite their best efforts in some cases to do the opposite. So, Would you have still been quite young when you went into the Met? I was 29. Wow. I think. Such a massive job to take on at a relatively young age, still, really, 29. Yeah. I'm quite intimidating, yeah, I so. I'd imagine. It, yeah, it was. Um, and dealing with the more senior people was was quite intimidating. But again, you know, it's half half game face, half authenticity by that stage. You know, there's a, there's a transition like a lot of other things are. So sometimes you just you have to be prepared to to dress up, put your big girl pants on and go in and do <laughs> what it is that you need to do. Um, and, you know, imposter syndrome would say it's all pretend anyway. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just talking a good game. But, what, you know, by and large, we were we were OK. It's, it, it's not that they didn't want to do it. It's just that they wanted something really pragmatic. They didn't want their yeah. work to be interfered with by unnecessary bureaucracy and red tape yeah. and restrictions, which is exciting to try and work around. Uh, would that have been the the, uh, the perception? Would, would you have would they have had that perception of that's what you're going to do before you're in the room? Did that exist, that kind of? pre-existing perception of your of what you're going to do yeah did you have to kind of fight that I, I mean yeah 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 I would say so um there was a the, the health and safety team has existed for a long time and I think it had been very um rule-based but very um you know this is what you're going to do this is what the law says that you have to do so this is yeah. what you're going to do um and that didn't and never lands well does it <laughs> and it didn't land well with the police the senior no. police officers in particular um so there was a certain amount of um of butting up against you know two worlds colliding i guess but um by the time i came in you, you felt like that there was a bit of a softening of the approach and a and a let's see how we can we can make this work um, and and make sure it's all everybody stays safe um, but it's a good grounding I suppose all we tried to do was just chip away at the, the foundations of it to make sure that it was a you know safety is something that you think about as you go out and you do your job it may not be the fundamental thing the fundamental thing is catching the, the baddies but it's it's a consideration that should be inherent um, in every in every decision that you make and it does you know it pays dividends in the end because you can you can you can sense it you know either you know you get fewer accidents perhaps or or you just hear people talking in a slightly different language yeah that's interesting I, there's something you touched on there that I'm going to ask you like a completely left of field question that you alluded to there what's your opinion of the kind of debates around safety first and as you just kind of said you know safety maybe not our first priority our first priority is catching the baddies so to speak and and in the police officer's head you know they're quite I mean my what would she be my cousin-in-law I think if that's a thing uh she's um part of the armed response team in in Luton um <laughs> so you know and I, I love chatting with her and unfortunately I don't get to see her that much anymore but 
you know, over a, over a pint or something, a chat with her is just mind blowing because the way she thinks and what she does is she's risk assessing dynamically in the moment straight away where she's just like, I'm, I'm off. And it's all on her in her head and, and she's doing her job or she's deciding to do something or not to do something, which is a risk assessment. But safety is not really her first priority because if it was, she wouldn't be able to do what she what she had to do. And I think that applies to probably the entire police force, really, doesn't it? And and any organisation. I mean, it's it's only fairly recently, to my knowledge, been ac- been acknowledged that anybody that says safety is their first priority is probably lying. Yeah. You know, that might be aspirational, but you know, you've you've got a whole load of competing priorities, haven't you? And safety is one of them. But it's it's no, it's no more or less important than shareholder dividend or profit or whatever it is to to an organization because otherwise it wouldn't exist yeah. so it's you know I, I think we we have to acknowledge that it's got to be blended into the suite of priorities and the as you say the police is is a prime example of that if you asked any emergency service it would it would be exactly the same yeah. and and like you say i mean that the the, the more um, the more exciting the police officer role the more they consider safety as the fundamental part of their their dynamic approach to to an operation um it's when you get to the, the more routine policing i think it's it's you know quite well i yeah i've been out of it for six years or so so i couldn't possibly say Another at this win. point but we certainly found that the that the firearms units the counter-terrorism units the um the the uh well, they call them cbrn the chemical biological radiological nuclear Wow. team <laughs> i know they're very exciting they knew all about safety funnily enough. Yeah. Um, and that was but they were able to plan to a certain extent build it into their tactics um as well as their um as well as the operational side of things they had a little bit of time to factor it in but yeah, yeah. Oh, what a fascinating job because we could probably just do a whole podcast on your career in the met if i'm honest honestly it really is it really is. And it taught me so much about, you know, un- understanding the different ways in which safety and post-incident safety, if you like. So more on the well-being side of things. Yeah, That's yeah. when I started to understand a lot more about, well, it's not just the pre-safety, it's also post-safety as well. So I, um, I was with the police when the 7-7 bombings happened. So oh, the wow. day, so the day after the bombs went off in the tubes, the safety team were down in the tunnels where the trains were still there, and the disaster victim recovery people were still down there, um, retrieving the the victims. Um, and we were doing um, air quality monitoring, which is so laughably mundane yeah. when you think about what everybody else was doing. But we were there making sure you know the tunnel dust levels were being read properly or there was no asbestos or you know stuff that's so prosaic now it just makes me laugh but those guys who were doing body retrieval the guys who were working down they wouldn't go home you know these were specialist officers they would not go home they slept in a church hall um, across the road from the tube station they got their head down for a couple of hours and then they went back slept on a kit bag went back in you know, did their job day in, day out. And it took, well, you probably know, it took absolutely ages mm. um, to, to clear the site and get it, get it moving, get it sterile again, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's when you started to look at them and think, how, how have you managed this? Mm. How have you 
even slept how 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 do you process that and take it home to your family yeah um yeah. and i i couldn't do it i mean i you know now acknowledging it looking back on it I had all sorts of problems after that because because of the stuff that you see I wasn't really prepared I thought I was you know I I wanted to be a forensic pathologist when I was younger I wanted to cut dead bodies open so I thought well this is this is me this is you know I can really go down there and I can be use in a in a disaster scenario um but came away from it thinking oh my goodness me these are people my age you know going to work like I was on the tube this, this yeah. could be me. And when you start to personalise it like that, you take it all away with you. And, yeah. you know, it starts to it starts to become very affecting. But, um, yeah, so it's definite interest in well-being after that and, and how police officers cope with that sort of demanding role um, and come out the other side of it. Not all of them do, of course. Yeah. It's fascinating because oh god I'm, I'm so torn now because this is like i want to go down this met route because this is just fascinating because uh when i did my this is like not i'm not very proud of this story but it's a good story to, to a point and when i when i did my knee boss general a very long time ago i was a very young naive man with or boy um with with some very thick blinkers on i'll say um <laughs> And, and the whole notion of stress and well-being to me was just, you know, I was that kind of guy that was like, well, you just just tell yourself not stressed. You know, mm. I, I was that naive, you know, and and or, or I just I wasn't exposed to it. Like I've never had anyone talk to me about that or anything. So I wasn't educated in that. So I was just like, well, just don't be stressed. Just be happy. <laughs> it pains me to think that I was like that. But I was on my Nebus General and I've always been comfortable to be able to say in a, in a training room, you know, something I struggle with or anything. So I got into this training room and we ended up talking about stress and I, and I was just like, again, this cocky young man that was just like, I don't get this stress stuff. Like what we, how are we supposed to risk assess that? What are we supposed to do with that? Blah, blah, blah. And I was very lucky in, at the, de- at the time really that in the room doing their Nebus, I had, like a I can't I'm, I can't remember the the official titles but it was like regional head of operations for Cambridgeshire Police Force and 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 a, excuse the dogs downstairs if you can hear them and uh, and the and pretty much the exact same role or a similar role for the fire service for another county and um and then and then like some British sugar people and some other stuff as well and we all started this conversation and some guy then went Oh, it's a load of crap anyway. And then this other guy from the police force, he said something which stuck with me my entire career and will for my entire life. He said, if you want to know what stress is, mate, he said, listen to this. I've got a guy at the minute who's doing a job um, of child abuse and he's and, and he's having to watch every single video. And the room went silent. And one of the victims is two little blonde girls He's got two little blonde girls. He said, how the f- are you going to risk assess that? He said, that's what stress is, mate. And Jesus Christ, I felt this big. I felt so just, but in hindsight, I'm so glad he said it because, mm. and I'm so glad I was comfortable to, to kind of voice my naivety in a way because I got to hear what he said and my mind was blown. And, you know, so I can just, I just, I can kind of, to a point, empathize just from that story of the challenges that you must have had 
with the team to be able to try and look after them. And you must have been coming up against that same battle in trying to, I don't know if you've watched like Line of Duty, but like they, they had this guy who's in the room and talking about his mental health because he just shot someone or something. And he's given, you know, the actor, it's a scenario like he hasn't got time to be there. He's, he's trying to save the world kind of thing. So that, that, that clash still just comes back again and again, I imagine. Or is it? It does. Yeah. Well, the one the one thing that the police are really good at, the Met Police work, and who talk to them obviously, was was trauma counselling and counselling in general. Um, for the, the big budget for counselling, and it was it was mandatory. So you went to a situation like um, like seven seven or you know equivalent, or there was a firearms incident, or yeah. you know you were in the the child abuse command, and you went for counselling, no yeah. questions asked, and what they were very, very well trained in police trauma in particular and sort of getting to the root of, so there were a lot of, you can picture the scene, can't you? Know, of, yeah. you know, I'm all right, I'm all right, I'm all right. And then, you know, years down the line, sometimes it, it caught up with them and they were very good at recognising and keeping tabs on people who had experienced something, even if they didn't talk at the time, yeah. um, that they were followed through and it, it, was, it was made abundantly clear that, you know, this was open for the rest of their career potentially if they needed to come back and have it dealt with um but yeah I mean so yeah some of what they do is just horrific absolutely horrific and I you know I I only I only experienced it for a few days and it affected me for the rest of my life so you know some of the things that they go through I don't I don't quite know how they how they might well they've presumably talked it out which I never did ironically so (laughs) what what was it what was that like when you had that seven seven and you had to or your team or whoever had to go hang on a minute we need to do some air monitoring because there could be loads of asbestos there like and these people are just desperate to get in and save you know i could just i could just imagine it like the pressure that you i assume it was your team that that were saying that like were under because you're these people are desperate to go in and save these people that were stuck under the rubble and oh my God, that must have just been unbelievable to be able to just have that conversation. Like, what did that? I mean, feel free to say I don't want to talk about it, but you know, it's um, no, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, fortunately, the negotiations happened at a pay grade above me, and and my <laughs> my manager at the time was was very. Um, he was very easy to to talk to and, and and senior officers found him very easy to talk to and he had a good relationship with them so he he was he was very clear really early on that we were going to be some of the first people down there clearly not the first because that's just ridiculous yeah. um so we had to and in common with a lot of safety you have to compromise on some things and the compromise was that you that you do the search and rescue in fact, the fire brigade actually did a lot of search and rescue, do that bit first. They have all their breathing apparatus and, and they go yeah. in and do that stuff. But at some point, really, really quite soon after that, we accompany you down there. All right. So your exposure, your your unknown exposure is as limited as possible. Because, yeah. of course, with the tube system, as you probably know, when you stop the trains, the ventilation stops as well. So you've yeah. got you've got very rapidly um, encroaching rancid air, which is tunnel dusty and um asbestos from the brakes and there's jesus um, yeah i didn't even think of that yeah yeah it's well some of the old new ones don't have it anymore but the older trains that were running at the time um do have asbestos plates 
Jeez. some of which were blown apart. There's um, there's tilt switches, or I can't remember the names of them now, but there was the, there was switches in the doors that allow them to go forward and backward that had some pretty potent chemicals in, which are in, enshrined in glass, which of course doesn't survive bombs very well. Um, and so there was all that to consider as well. Plus, you know, you can't avoid it, biological hazards that, that were there too, plus the potential for any un, unexploded ordnance. There were so many unknowns going down there that, you know, we couldn't have possibly done them all. We had to trust that those police officers had the un, underlying dynamic risk assessment knowledge to go in there and assess the situation before they, they got involved with it. But they don't have the specialist kit to do air quality monitoring, so there we were buzzing away in the background. Um, taking readings and, and taking them back upstairs uh, but it was like the fires of hell it really was so I mean I did mostly mine were the um, subsurface uh, trains at um, Edgware Road and Oldgate a couple of my colleagues did the Russell Square Russell Square one wasn't it and it was deepest line in London down on the Piccadilly line and it was baking absolutely mm. baking they lost about two stone in fact most of the police officers down there lost so much weight they had to they had to do in really quick rotation come up and down if they could because it was just so hot nothing no air movement at all so in the end because the go into a lot of this i dare say you'll cut most of this out but um because they didn't they couldn't have ventilation in there and because they were all basically you know dehydrating and you know passing out from the heat they had to find a way in which they could have fans running without it disturbing the forensic evidence that was all around so they had to set oh, up Jesus, some sort of elaborate yeah. sheeting exercise oh, really? um, that, that you know allowed allowed some some air movement in but stopped everything from escaping so it's huge great sheets wow. all around the tunnels to, to sheet it all in like an evidence tent um, and they, they managed to get some some ventilation in there eventually so if I imagine this correctly, um, my imagination of any police activity is all coming from line of duty. So <laughs> I, just I'm imagining these these forensic people in their full on forensic get up. So none of their stuff contaminates the scene. Mm-hmm. A tent in underground. And I think it was summertime, like you say, was, was it? Yes. Around, yeah, July, summertime. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. July. And. So, so that's what I'm talking about, like shoe covers, the kind of overall things, the head, and then they're in that tent and they're underground. Jesus. Plastic and tent, no ventilation. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Oh, that's unbelievable. I mean, so, yeah. you kind of you kind of know that's what happened, but then until you kind of think about it, like to your point where you go, hang on a minute, July, tent, overalls, underground, you know, Jesus, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm not being funny, but if you can imagine the the additional input of bodies in there, yeah. you know, and how quickly, how rapidly they may be affected by that kind of heat and lack of ventilation as well. So it all Jesus, adds up yeah. to being, you know, if they are if they are not true heroes without their capes, I don't I don't know what a hero is. Exactly. Really. Yeah, yeah. Just and meanwhile, of course, up, upstairs, you've got all this from the mayor. We must reopen, we must reopen, we must reopen, we must get the tubes working again, we must do this, we must do that. London can't come to a standstill. You know, the economy has to keep moving. So it's it's multi-layered, the kind of pressure that you end up being under. And it's it's from the senior officers are getting it from, from everywhere. Powers that be. Yeah. The, the officers underground are working in the most hellish conditions you could possibly imagine. 
And so, you know, if you if you told me anybody had gone out of those situations unaffected, uh, I'd be calling you a liar. Yeah. And, and the interrelationships must have been interesting as well or, or challenging. It's probably the better word. Like there must have been, you know, I'm just thinking of like the thing you mentioned about the door frames and the chemicals and the asbestos. Like that information, that must have been with the tra- travel for London, the TFL or whatever they're called, Transport for London. So you must have had to have like a, a good interrelationship with them to say, where's this information? We need this, like, it's, it's like trying to do construction planning, talking to all these different people, but in the pressure of we need it yesterday kind of thing, which, yeah. you know, I've worked in construction. It's a nightmare when you've got a four-year project, let alone a 30-second project, which is probably what yeah. you had. Well, I mean, you know, obviously they knew about it really quickly because it happened course, on yeah. their network. <laughs> and um, so they shut everything down, all the, you know, all the electricity had to go down straight away and... Um, so everybody had to like cart in these great big temporary lights because there's no lights down there. So like, you know, people hefting really heavy equipment down into, you know, however many stairs it takes to get down to, to Russell square in particular. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, but they were getting out the schematics or the, you know, all the tube tunnels and where they offshoot to and, you know, where's the nearest point that you can pump some power out of and, you know, all of that kind of thing. Plus, the construction of those particular tube trains are they old stock are they new stock are they whatever so everything had to be checked so that those dynamic risk assessments could take place because they can't take place in a vacuum can they because have some sort of information to work with so all of that had to happen really quickly as well and they were really really good information providers so for us going down there running some buzzing machines they were saying well you're likely to find this here but actually you know, if you're talking about Old Gate and Edgware Road, there's a lot of lines coming in at once. So the tunnels are really quite big and also they're semi-open to the to the air as well. So you could take all of that to, into account when you're trying to look at build-up of gases or, or dusts or whatever. You've got a certain leeway yeah. in that, which they didn't have at Russell Square, um, which was enclosed about 500 yards or so between stations in fact it was directly between stations i think so it's a hefty walk with a lot of floodlights and great big yeah do you, know, of equipment. do you know what i didn't even think of that in my head i'm just thinking oh my god they've got to come down the stairs down to the station but it's not is it it's down to the station along the the tube or down the service actually what it wasn't at a station it was in oh my god yeah oh my god so, I don't yeah. even have any words. Like I'm not very often I'm lost for words, but Jesus. Those invisible jobs. But yeah, they do. They do. I went on to um there was, there was about three or four of us that were the health and safety advisors for um one of the only national cohorts of police that there were at that stage. There's, there's a few more now, but it was the um it was a disaster victim identification cohort. So effectively they were set up, mobilized if there was a disaster abroad to not only offer assistance but also to uh, sort of try and identify and repatriate British victims so you know for example the tsunami we had a cohort went out there and that that was it was sort of started to be you know the formation of when it was formalized um kind of like the Tunisia thing and stuff like that yeah yeah all of that so wherever there's a, a not not necessarily a British national contingent in there because we do offer service they they do offer services um to help out 
you know, to developing countries or whatever with, with yeah. some of their stuff. But um, it really, you know, there's 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 probably I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten countries where they they have a very um, a very mature cohort of people that can go out and and do what they need to do. And the, and the disaster, the victim identification bit for me was key. Coming back to forensic pathology, of course, I finally got my work with dead bodies in the end. <laughs> not quite the the way in which I was expecting it to be. Yeah. So the body recovery and the the victim identification. Absolutely fascinating podcast all by itself. Really oh. fascinating stuff. I'm, at this rate, we'll have to get you back on like five or six times if I'm honest. Uh, <laughs> it's fascinating. It's waffling. <laughs> it's not waffle at all. It's oh, it's unbelievable. Like I just, oh, I didn't even know that, that, that you'd. I kind of I had in my in my head. Oh yeah, you worked in the Met, but like not during that time. That's unbelievable. And they're just. God, what an experience to have gone through. You must find every other safety job now just unbelievably mundane. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you can, you can, you can do the dynamic stuff for a while, but, you know, probably a lot of police officers would tell you that it's, you know, it can be a short life, not literally, but it was short, oh, yeah. short shelf life on some of this. Um, and in fact, you know, for things like the child abuse command, you get rotated. You can only do two years or whatever it is. And um, then you have to move out and do something else because it would just, I don't know whether it would inure you to it or, you know, I, I, I don't know. But it would have some damage, wouldn't it, on you? Really, it really do. would. Yeah, it must really do, would. surely. But yeah, I mean, it's a very, it was an exciting time, if you, if you want to call it that. In quotations, um, yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. But there was a lot going on and there was loads of learning from it as well. Um, the disaster victim identification bit or the, the formalising, because it, it, it ended up being a, a postgraduate diploma course as well, just to learn to be a disaster victim cohort officer or staff member, as, as two or three of us were. So you have to go up to Dundee and do a course in um, <coughs> in human identification. So if you've got a you know, if you've got a drowning victim or something, how to um, how to remove clothing bit by bit, how to photograph it, how to evidence bag it, how to put it away, you know, catalogue it and all that sort of thing. And everything has to be done so carefully and so systematic. You don't want to lose any kind of evidence at all, whether that's a label or a tattoo or, you know, depending on what's happened to the person it makes a real difference to the sort of identification you can get out of them. So if yeah. you, if you have a drowning victim, for example, their hands often degloved. So where are you going to get the, the fingerprints from? Well, you might get them on the toes because they're probably wearing shoes. So, you, you know, you looking for things in, in, in you know, in quite a dynamic way, I suppose, <coughs> looking around a problem. Yeah. You know, if you've got, and all of these things, you've got to mark on sheets of paper that, you know, you've got, you, you have, you have anti-mortem forms, which, it, it cut all this out if you want but, but just for the oh, sake this of this is know. gold yeah if you thing. have um if if you have you have two types of disasters really you have um, an open disaster and you have a closed disaster so if you have an open disaster you imagine the tsunami where you don't know who's where at any one time if you have an air crash <clears throat> for example you generally know who they were because they're on a manifest and and yeah. whereabouts they were sitting probably <clears throat> excuse me so that sort of helps you right from the start. So if you if you report a loved one missing, and this is why all these casualty lines come up. If you think somebody's been involved in, you know, ring this number, and they take a whole load of information. Um, 
and they put it onto a yellow anti-mortem form. So you've got to tell them if you've got tattoos, if what colour hair, you know, all that sort of business. Um, and then if they if they grade it down um, to somebody that they think is very likely to have been affected by this particular disaster, they then go out and take hair samples, toothbrush samples, right. genetic DNA samples, whatever. Um, and then so you have a yellow form for people who have reported missing and then you have a pink form that you use in the mortuary and the pink form is where you fill out all of the characteristics of the person that you've got on on the bench yeah um and that's absolutely everything that you could possibly even down to you know really intimate details about somebody because you you know that might be you know well this person's got a prince albert so you've got to go you know circling around that sort of thing right so um so all of that goes on a pink form. And then what happens is once you've once you've got the, the pink forms done, they are put together with the yellow forms. It goes to a committee, or not a committee, I don't know what they call it. It's a group of people who match the two. And they are, they just sit there. They're not, they're independent of anything that's gone on on either side. They bring the two forms together and they tell they tell the coroner whether there's a match or not. I think it's the coroner. But the procedure's a bit a bit hazy now. But um they're the ones that decide if if the yellow form and the pink form match up and that is your person. Um and then that's when Jesus. that information is released. Do you so know what, a huge, huge industry in the background? One, what an amazing insight. So thank you very much. Two, that <laughs> like, yes, in the time it was probably kind of a bit of a a horrible experience to go through, but also what an amazing experience to go through as well. But the whole time you were saying that, all I could think was, it's, I'm just reading. I'm just reading a book called Meltdown, and I'm just finishing a couple of pages with it. They were defining like tightly coupled systems and complexities from Perot's work, and um, and I was just thinking, well, if you've ever wanted a definition of tightly coupled system and complexity, it's literally the last twenty minutes of you talking, like from the stuff that happened on Seven Seven and that and that, and that work there. That is so, like, there's so much room for error there, isn't there? So much room for error. So this this um, move to, like, a lot of emphasis on people being the solution in, in this, it's, that must have just been second nature to you already because you must have had to put so much onus on all of those officers in those moments being just on the ball, just really mm. on the ball. I mean, if you don't have empathy then you've got no business doing that job really you've got to be able to to recognize that they will act like it's just another job Mm. but you know in in full well that that's not that's not just another job Mm. um and fortunately the that whole you know the the counseling and the aftercare that's come along more recently is, is very much part of what policing is about now it's recognized that that people will sometimes never recover from experiences like that they'll go on because of course you would it's your it's the, the police isn't a career usually it's a it's a calling isn't it something yeah um, and you want to be a police officer you want to do all the things that police officers do and so those careers are given up unwillingly um so you have to be able to allow people to manage their way through some of these crises and and post-traumatic stresses yeah um but yeah it's a it's a big job no doubt Unbelievable. And, and from your point of view as a as a safety professional in that which essentially your role is to try and 
reduce as much error as possible, stop something going wrong from a safety point of view. But I assume there are processes and systems in place to stop error happening from a, a contamination of evidence point of view. Mm. But so much of that stuff that you, you've spoke about is all on the person. Like you must, it must be interesting. Like, like for example, I, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day, but they were given the example of the, the Hillsborough disaster. And um, he, was, he, he could never really explain to his, his dad was a police officer. I could never really explain to his dad. And if this person is listening, I apologize. I can't remember who you are, but he couldn't explain to his dad what he did really in his job in this new view and trying to say, you know, we can't really blame the person and blah, blah, blah. And basically his dad always used to tell this story um, about he was, a police officer at a football event or, or a big event or something like that. And the crowd was just unbelievable coming through. And his boss had said to him, don't open this gate. Whatever you do, don't open the gate. But this police officer was like, if I don't open this gate in the moment, was like, if I don't open this gate, someone's going to die. Like I'm going to have to open the gate. Like there's just too many people here. So he opened the gate and he got a rollicking. Like he got telling off. I told you not to open that gate, blah, blah, blah. And, and then when Hillsborough happened and then in hindsight, his boss kind of came to him and said, do you know what? I shouldn't have told you off for that because actually in hindsight, I can see that you did the right thing. Like it wouldn't have been the Hillsborough disaster. It would have been the whatever disaster that, that you'd have caused because mm. you didn't open that gate. It caused in, in quotations. Um, and, and he said, so is that kind of what you're talking about with your work stuff? And he was like, Yes, dad. Yeah, that's it. And I, and I was like, so happy for him. What a lovely story. But but yeah. also like that blame conversation that, we, that a lot of people really struggle with in safety. Like we can't blame the worker because, you know, there's a bigger context to that decision. In the police force, that must be a very interesting conversation as well around like police office failure. And can we blame them when they're really under that much pressure and, and so on and so forth? They're the same fine margins, but they are they they have to be made with rapidity, mm. and those those sort of dynamic decisions are the difference between life and death in in a lot of cases. And I mean, we we talk about the tube bombings or you know mass disasters, but you know daily this plays yeah. out for for a lot of police officers. It's those those snap decisions, and you can only do so much. I mean, dynamic risk assessment will only take you so far. It's reliant on the inject of information that you've had in the first place. It, you know, it relies so heavily on the personality of the, the people concerned, how susceptible they are to red mist, how, um, you know, how blinkered, focused, tunnel visioned they are. Um, so that all sorts of things come into play. And with hindsight being such a wonderful thing, you know, any of us can think we're doing the right thing in the right moment and be found wanting on the other side of it. It's usually not a life and death situation though mm. and it's usually not one that's going to appear in the daily mail or evening standard or news at 10 so they do a, an extremely difficult job in extremely difficult circumstances in some respects yeah some respects and probably even worse at the moment with the scrutiny that the police force are under around the world as well it's just and they have to carry on regardless you know they've got to be evidence-based you know their whole their yeah, whole career yeah. is about evidence so whatever they're being criticized for at any one time and don't get me wrong you know I'm, I'm as clear-eyed as anybody else about 
the police and its its inherent failings in some areas. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you the police as an entity and the police as the as the individuals that make up the police force one by one yeah. are two wholly different things for me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and coming at it from that human angle, that that person centered angle, you've got you've got to be able to separate the strategy and the tactics from the people who are actually carrying it out. I don't think probably in my lifetime there'll ever be a situation where police officers are routinely looked at as as individuals. And I don't mean to be controversial in that. I just mean that it, it's it's too big a job in a way to base police strategy around the individuals who are carrying out that th those orders yeah um so i don't think in a normal workplace you maybe could or within a normal team you maybe could you know apply some discretion according to an individual's makeup or mental state or mm. um you know emotional state i don't necessarily think you'd get that in some of the um the more um operational disciplines of the police well i think it uh, i mean without we could go into a probably a two-hour conversation just about that but i i'm inclined to say that it's not controversial what you said but i can understand why you kind of caveated that but i think when we talk about it from a normal safety point of view it's it's very similar to a way obviously it's probably much more higher pressure in in some of those situations in the police force but it's very similar in a way that Basically, what we're saying is humans are fallible and they're heavily influenced by many, many, many things. And, and, and several of those things are created by us as the organization or the entity, which in your case is or your, your previous case is the police force the, as, as a business, which essentially is kind of what yeah. it is as an organization, which is influenced by budgets, by, you know, brand, by public perception all of that stuff and then all of the additional stuff that happens in that moment like interestingly you, you mentioned red mist and stuff which i never thought of but in that moment of like a heated confrontation how emotion can really kind of take over and we all of those things that influence us to make a decision that may be right may be wrong so i, I think i agree i kind of get the point in that i think we would probably fall short if we were to look at it on an individual per individual basis, because how can you when they're influenced by so many of those things? Yeah. And it, and it changes hour to yeah. hour. And, and however, you know, if you say, I think it was, it was one of your previous guests would say, you don't know which person is coming to work necessarily. It's the person that had a row with their partner. It's a person that, yeah, you know, yeah. suffered a bereavement or whatever. And those are just as true for, for police officers, but they are looked at differently. And, and uh, you can see the dichotomy, can't you, between, you know, somebody that's got to be um, very strong on the outside. They've got to be quite authoritative. We're coming a bit full circle here. Um, yeah. But on the inside, you know, they're going through it and their hair trigger is going to be different from one day to the next. So you've got a confrontational situation. They're also, of course, expected to be social workers these days, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. So dealing with a, with a huge increase in the number of mental health um, patients that they yep. see, or people who are suffering with mental ill health at the time of their, their contact with the police, yeah. they're expected to be social workers as well. And you can see if you're on a hair trigger anyway, you know, and, and that, and maybe you're prone to red mist, or maybe you're not. But 
you know, they, the, the, the two must be in huge conflict with each other at any given time. You've got, you can't make way for the red mist. You can't punch somebody's lights out just because you're feeling, you know, a bit crap. Um, despite provocation, yeah. of which there is a lot. We, yeah, I just won't say that. Yeah. Oh, God, fascinating. But they're not social workers, are they? They're authoritarian by their very nature. They're authoritarian. They're designed to be there to catch baddies and feel collars. Well, that, to your point, their, it comes full yeah. circle, isn't it? They're 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 meant to be that officer of that authoritarian position, not the empathetic person that that's there to listen and understand. That's not their job. But they're expected to do just that. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny that again, my cousin-in-law, if that is a thing, um, in that some of the conversations that we've had with her. It, similarly the things that she really struggles with has been those things that actually she's asked to do that are not really within her role in those social worker type situations without saying too much it, it they're the things that really get to her not not because it's all oh, that's not my job more that, that they're really hard things to do because she inherently is being quite empathetic to that position but then is in a conflict with her role mm. which is interesting and and interesting that i think maybe if the some of the listeners just to kind of tie this in a loop it's really fascinating that we might think that we've come off base and we've not really spoke about the diversity stuff because we've ended up talking about your role but i actually think we really have this whole time if you think about it because what's and i might be wrong here so correct me if i'm wrong but i think what's really beautiful about this is that you have the two roles of the the kind of um enforcing officer and the consultancy role which didn't fit your inherent female traits of kind of the more softer side of building relationships and stuff like that I found the role in the Met which inherently needed those female traits those focusing on building a relationship with the officers and 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 working out how to help them succeed in what they do and being more empathetic because you needed to understand the challenges that they're going through so whilst i think it may not felt like we've sat talking about diversity actually diversity for me seems to be the thing that actually really helped you succeed obviously your skills and your talent did as well but that's maybe what made the met work so really well for you maybe i don't know i'm thinking out loud possibly and i think there's a bit of a blended approach to it because you know you do have to to call a spade a spade sometimes there's no getting course, around yeah. it but it just it was um it was a, a complete education but something that I think you know I took away with me into into my next role which was all about creating a strategy around you know talking collaborating and, and doing safety that was people-centered and engagement and forums and you know let's do yeah. safety with people not to people so yeah. so you know each stage and I'm sure everybody goes through this each stage taught me something a little bit more and gave me um, the confidence to take it that little bit further as well so yeah. just suppressing the imposter syndrome a little bit more each time so yeah, I can yeah. do it I've learned this. I'm going. I'm now going to put it into practice, um, and so that's that's how you progress. Presumably, you just you learn and you adapt and you um, you implement, don't you? Mm. Mm. Well, we've been talking for quite a while. Um, <laughs> hopefully, it doesn't feel like that for you, but no, no, maybe it does. <laughs> it's not um, often you get, these days. I don't get a chance to revisit these sort of things very often and it's quite nice to, to look back on it from a distance and say well yeah that was a 
that was a, a strange but exciting and very rewarding time yeah no and well done and fair play to you <laughs> like what and well done for, to anyone you know as a, as a kind of shout out to all the people involved in that you know my respect goes out to you and every single one of them that worked on that because that's just like I say, I've got no words, so I'm not going to ruin it by trying to put words in there. Um, but you have my respect. Well done. Um, do you want to kind of tie this up, maybe talk about the work you're doing now with the, the women in safety stuff, which I had every intention of talking a lot about, but damn you for having such an interesting career. <laughs> <laughs> my apologies. Well, we can, we can sort of tie it up, I suppose. So all the thing, the thread that's been running through this is around, um, acknowledging that things are changing within the health and safety world, that some of these traits are becoming more prominent and more, more needed um, as we go on. And, and it's really just making sure that that acknowledgement is, is, is pursued hotly by um, an increase in the number of people who can demonstrate those traits either naturally or learned. And this is not, you know, I, I, I chair um, an organization which is which is rather grandly titled the the global coalition of women in safety networks the idea of which is you know all over the world are these women in safety networks it's clearly a thing it's clearly what's needed um, but they're all working you know relatively independently doing their own thing but bugger me if they don't all have the same sort of ideology the same objectives the same thoughts and and ideas about how to counteract some of the um, some of the problems and the barriers so what we we decided louise um and malcolm staves who you've probably come across as well who works have, yeah. at l'oreal um and i had 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 confl conflabs about how to bring this all together and it's it's um it's turned into this global coalition and we we had um so much interest and enthusiasm for these networks to start coming together to work and share ideas together um, and just to, to try and help each other out in a, in a great big feminine traits way, enable each other to lift as we climb. As somebody once said, Viv, Viv Groskop, I think is, she wrote a book, and she lift as you climb. So we can help um, not only some of the underrepresented groups within health and safety, it's not just about women, it's about diversity in general, inclusion in general. Um, and some of the underrepresented networks, we can help get a voice. We can, we can help them become more audible, um, but also help um, some of the individuals within those networks get opportunities to speak at, at conferences. You'll know as well as I do, you get the same faces, don't you, at conferences, the same invitees. Yeah. And what we would really like to do is hear some of the experiences of, of women and underrepresented groups who are maybe at the start of their career or maybe coming back into a career, uh, maybe you know experiencing this career for the first time in their 40s or 50s. Uh, and what, what is it like to be them? What is it that they need? What, what is it that they're experiencing how can we help? What, what structures can we help with um, that will enable them to progress in their career and make a success out of themselves? So it, it's in its infancy. It's evolving all the time. Uh, but that first meeting that we had in January, we had um, a lady called Eldine Posniak, who's, who's very well known, well, well known in safety circles, but in particular Canada, North America. Um, and she was in Arizona. It was 5 a.m. there. So she was having really strong coffee. And then it spanned the, that meeting, spanned the globe. We had 16 people that went from, from Eldine at 5 a.m. to um, now Trish Kerrin, who's over in 
I'm going to say Melbourne or Sydney. I can't remember which, maybe even Brisbane, but she was drinking her last glass of wine at midnight. <laughs> so, but, and, and everybody was so Love enthusiastic that. about speaking to everybody else. And so it went right, right the way across through, through West Africa, through Europe, through Amazing. India, Sri Lanka, um, right the way across. And that's that where we're hoping to get to is to not necessarily set common objectives because these networks are, are individual. They do their own thing and, you know it, it varies depending on where they are in the world but we can do peer-to-peer mentoring for example there's nothing to stop somebody in north america mentoring somebody in sri lanka and you know hearing from them about their their networks and how they're getting on and setting themselves up and you know more mature networks can learn from the fledgling ones mm. you know in just the same way as as fledgling ones can learn from the mature ones so it's all about bringing people together it's all about you know making amplifying voices about offering opportunities um yeah and and i mean louise and i are, are huge advocates of this so excited about it all and all of the members are really excited as well to be able to do it mm-hmm. so that so hopefully what we're doing is just just nudging things along a little bit um and we've got grand ambitions really we start off with a bit of mentoring uh, peer-to-peer mentoring and we end up with with uh, complete policy change in some of the in some developing <laughs> nations that they can start having health and safety legislation that actually means something yeah that's, that's the ambition whether it outlives us both probably but that's where we're heading there's there's a beyonce song in there somewhere i'm sure about women changing the world not sung by me or danced by me <laughs> I, I i love that i think it's absolutely amazing i think it's something we need more of as well and and i love that it's bringing those groups together not necessarily saying oh we're just going to make a new group another group we're just going to say well hang on a minute you've acknowledged those groups there how can we just help connect those groups together and i think that is is, is an example of the benefit of of bringing diversity in it's not about just ticking boxes it for me it's that cognitive diversity of somebody in africa be it man woman young old whatever has a different way of solving a problem to me and you over here in england because we've had different experiences and and hearing you know that's kind of what we're trying to do at project Malitum as well is just give people a problem and just say, well, what's everyone's different ideas? And sometimes everyone's got the same idea. Sometimes you know, someone's over here and someone's way over there. And yeah. it's just awesome to listen to groups of people com- coming together and collaboratively solving a problem. And when you make that group diverse, that's how you, that's how you innovate. And I think that's what our profession needs more of. Yeah, definitely. And you've also got those groups that can offer something out as well. So it's not it's not just geographic networks. We've got some large organisations jumping on board as well. So we've um, you know, obviously L'Oreal are a, a founder member, if you like, and and do do an awful lot of it's not so much sponsorship, but but financial assistance to training courses and stuff. So Louise and Malcolm and um, a couple of others have been offering some of the young female leaders some safety leadership training so laurel yeah. paid for that so it, so it, it's actually tangible things that we can bring out of of it and the more the more larger organizations we get on board we've been speaking to some quite hefty organizations about bringing their women in safety that their women safety professionals into this network or their diversity um groups into this network so that um you know there's this credibility there as well some of these organizations work in 
developing nations so can you bring that influence to bear if you're part of our network let's let's feed some of that back into the nations in which you work so that we could start to again just push things forward slightly so there's great there's a great big swell of enthusiasm for what it can achieve even though you've got to start fairly small the 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 possibilities are huge i think yeah outstanding i love it outstanding looking forward to seeing what they can do thank you very much for your time and welcome it's been an absolute pleasure Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that episode of our diversity mini series. Remember, if you want to feedback, then please, we welcome it. If you want to share comments, if you want to comment on the post or whatever it is, YouTube video, whatever it is you want to do, we really appreciate your feedback. And we really, really want you to help us all learn so we can learn together. But ultimately, let's do it from a nice, respectful and empathetic way and understand that some people are not as mature in the journey as others. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance HSE subscription service. You can get hold of them at the email address and phone number below. And if you want to go check out the Learning Organization webinar or you just want to check out Paradigm some more, go to the website in the description below. Thank you very much for partnering with us, Paradigm Human Performance. We absolutely love what you're doing. I think you're an outstanding company, an outstanding bunch of people. If you're keen to understand more of what I'm doing, you can check me out. You can check me out. Check me out. That's a really bad way to say that. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm probably the most active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to improve my Twitter recently, even though Twitter makes me feel really uncomfortable. Uh, So you can follow me on Twitter as well. Uh, Don't forget to follow Rebranding Safety as well. We're on LinkedIn. That's probably where we're most strong as well. We've also got Facebook and Twitter as well. So make sure you check us out on all of those. All the links in the description below. You want to come check out what we're doing at Project Meletium. Also, the link for that is in the description below. But otherwise, I shall catch you next week safe. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.